The lesson is taken from the book of Ruth, chapter 1. It's on page 267. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judea, in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they'd lived there about 10 years, both Marlon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. What would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons. Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this, they wept again. And then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, 
but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I pray that I might speak in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Do keep that uh, lovely story open in front of you, page 267. And over the next eight weeks or so, we're venturing into the Old Testament here in the morning services at St. Andrews and looking at two fascinating books. First, of course, the book of Ruth and then the book of Jonah. Both stories are exceedingly ancient, obviously, and I suppose to some extent remote from us culturally. When we get into the book of Ruth, there'll be some things that we need to uh, unpack and carefully understand in the context of the culture, particularly the whole issue of the kinsman redeemer, which we'll deal deal with in the next three weeks. And of course, the whole uh, issue of Jonah and the whale seems a long way from us today. But I think that as we look at these stories, we will see that their application is extraordinarily contemporary. Just take Jonah for a moment. Jonah is a man running away from God. Can there have been a week in recent British history when it has become more obvious that we as a society are running away from God? No change in the abortion laws, so the slaughter continues. No need for families to have fathers. Human embryos developed for no other reason than how they can be used. And yet the Bible teaches us that human beings are made in the image of God. The God of the whole universe became a fetus. As one of the members of parliament put it in the debate this week, nowadays the most dangerous place for a baby is in her mother's womb. God called Jonah and he ran away. Through the proclamation of the gospel, God is calling our nation back to him, and some have heroically put their heads above the parapet this week in order to uh, try to stop our society plunging further into godlessness. When Jonah came to his senses, God had some surprises for him, and he might well have some for our nation in the future, I suspect. Ruth was also contemporary. She was a stateless immigrant who demonstrated Christ-like characteristics in the face of personal disaster, bereavement, and loneliness. Her life speaks of the appropriate way to live in the light of God's providential care and in a society that is turning its back upon God. Lessons of the book are timeless. David Atkinson, uh, a good friend of St. Andrew's when he was here in Oxford as librarian at Latimer House, now the Bishop of Thetford. In 1983, he wrote a lovely little book, a commentary on Ruth, entitled Wings of Refuge. I've got it here. And in the introduction to the book, introduction to his commentary, he reflects on the reason for why our society is turning its back on reliance on God's providence. And he begins his discussion like this, and you'll see why I think the book has some contemporary application. This is 1983, remember. Not only has our century experienced world wars of immense destruction and is under under growing pressure to expect and prepare for another, 
it is also beset by other enormous apocalyptic questions which threaten to change the whole notion of what it means to be human. The slaughter of unborn infants on an unprecedented scale makes Canaanite child sacrifice seem almost insignificant by comparison. Not only so, while recognizing the many social pressures which lie behind many requests for termination of pregnancy, abortion is often discussed only in terms of rights and benefits for the already born. This is having a profound effect on our social consciousness concerning what traditionally has been thought of as life's sanctity. Many arguments for abortion lead logically to justification of, of infanticide. There is increasing pressure to enforce so-called death with dignity on the aged and to withhold life from some infants born handicapped. Hundreds of millions of people in our world are being starved by neglect through the sustained affluence of the West and because the so-called powers prefer to use the underprivileged as political pawns rather than set themselves to solve the problems of a, dust, of a just distribution of the rich bounty of God's earth. He then says uh, that there are three factors which challenge our trust in God, three uh, ways in which we can be led astray. The first is that we can be led astray to other gods, by which he means society's cultural atheism, which leads to a belief as a god, a belief held with evangelical zeal by many in humanism, materialism, and naturalism. They themselves become gods to be followed. Put crudely, expressed crudely, we might say that uh, we have it dethroned God and enthroned man. He says, secondly, that we're led astray from trust in God by what he calls scientism. David Atkinson welcomes the progress of science, of course, but laments the idea that science has the key to all knowledge. We tend to think we know better than the psalmist who wrote, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. He quotes wonderful hymn of Addison, uh, which sadly we probably ought to sing more often than we do. The spacious firmament on high with all the blue ethereal sky and spangled heavens a shining frame, their great original proclaim. He goes on like this, the black holes, red giants, white dwarfs, and multi-million dollar space programs make the great original sound rather archaic as well as improbable. Of course, it is truly excellent that there are many in the world of science, not least those who attend this church, many of whom are distinguished and eloquent in their scientific research and in their godliness, who are alert to the limitations of the scientific method. All power to you. We're also led astray from trust in God by the problem of evil. The problem of evil has always been the greatest threat to belief in God. Where is God, people cry, as tribal genocide sweeps millions away. Where is God, people cry, as earthquakes and cyclones destroy hundreds of thousands of people. Where is God, people cry, as each of us knows that in the midst of life we are in death. Last weekend alone, Sue and I lost five friends, four of them to premature death. Belief in God has always been threatened by the unspeakable evil of man to man and, of course, by the hazards of nature. 
That is the world in which we live in. That is the reality of where we are. A society running away from God, a society which has, it believes, very good reasons to reject God. The beautiful story of Ruth shines like a bright light into the darkness of these questions. Because the writer of the story introduces us to a God who cares, who sustains, and who provides. And I want to share five lessons quickly from chapter one, which I think speak into the situation which I have described. Firstly, even in the darkest days, there will be those who follow God. Even in the darkest days, there will be those who follow God. Belief in God and in the gospel will never be extinguished. And of course, it's true that it's growing fast. Christianity is growing faster and faster all the time, especially in the southern hemisphere. The story of Ruth is set in the time of the judges. Verse 1. If ever you feel that 21st century life is violent, godless, and foul, go and read the book of Judges for a bit as an antidote. We are told that everybody did what was right in their own eyes, and actually even the goodies in Judges do pretty unspeakable things. Life is characterized by social chaos and personal misery. But here we are in the book of Ruth, having our attention directed to a man from Bethlehem called Elimelech and his wife Naomi. Ordinary people living quiet lives like the vast majority of people in society. Ordinary, like you and me. But folk through whom God's plan was to be worked out. Not just his small plan in the lives of this family, but his big plan, the plan of salvation. Initially, of course, we find them a fleeing famine, perhaps as we might uh, have if famine struck Oxford, off we would go, or off you would go, uh, to live in your cottage in Cornwall or wherever it is. Uh, it wasn't quite like that for Naomi and Elimelech, of course, but they went off to Moab to escape the famine. Tragedy struck with Elimelech's death. Sometimes in family services in church, you find the story of Ruth dramatized in a sort of sketch. If ever you're asked to be in it, don't be Elimelech because you don't last very long in the story. At least you'll be able to learn your script easily. The two sons marry the Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. I wonder how Naomi felt about that at first. Surely it must have been tricky. Her nice Jewish boys have, more, have married foreign women. I imagine there were some tensions in the family around then. But then further tragedy occurs and both sons die and the three women are thrown together and clearly godly Naomi wins the love and respect of her daughters-in-law. National crisis, personal tragedy, the book of Ruth directs us to a seriously godly woman. There will always be, in the darkest days, those who follow God. The light of the gospel will not be extinguished. Secondly, I think we can learn from this chapter that in the midst of personal tragedy, we too can find God. In the midst of personal tragedy, we can still find God. Naomi's story at this stage is not a happy ever after story. 
she seems, to be honest, very despairing. Just look for a moment at, uh, at verse 11, for instance. Return home with me, my daughters. Why, why, why would you come with me? Am I going to have more husbands who could become your, more uh, sons who could become your husbands? Return home. Don't come with me. She's even bitter, verse 13. Would you wait until they grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. More bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. She's deeply pessimistic about the future. This is not a kind of um, skipping through the daisies happy time for her. There they are, these three women coming back from uh, Moab uh, through what is pretty rough country. I've driven through the uh, country between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, as I expect some of you have. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty unwelcoming terrain. Dangerous place for these three women to be traveling. Even if she got home, Naomi had no real hopes of much of a future. Yet, as we read the story here, her conversation is full of belief in God and trust in his providence. Look at verses 8 and 9, for instance. She urges them to go back, but prays, may the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown kindness to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest. She may be feeling very hard done by. She may be feeling overwhelmed by personal tragedy, but it doesn't stop her trusting God. It's very significant, very important, very encouraging for us. There may be personal circumstances in our lives that are very hard to bear. It doesn't mean that we stop trusting God. In the midst of personal tragedy, we can still find God. Thirdly, there is always room for true goodness. Naomi does not allow her appalling situation to stop her doing and being good, although, of course, she's very real. I want to say this with a little bit of care because I don't want to be misunderstood or seem uh, uncaring, but my own experience and my pastoral work has helped me to see more and more clearly that personal suffering can be used as the best excuse there is for selfishness. Things go wrong for us and we demand attention. We require people to make a fuss of us. We turn every conversation to our own problem. My guess is at times we've all been guilty of this. Not a week, even a day goes by when as a vicar there isn't evidence of it. And of course Naomi demonstrates that. It comes out clearly. Too old for a husband, poor me. You will desert me in due course. Poor me. It's quite natural to feel that way. But we should fight our self-pity as I believe Naomi did. You see, she could have so much more easily cajoled the girls to stay with her. Don't leave me. I'm old and helpless and will never find a husband. I need you looking after me here all the time. Poor me. It would be so easy for, her, for us to hear her saying that. But no, she urges them to go home. Go back to your own people. I'll be all right. I know it's tough, but I'll be all right. I don't want your lives to be sacrificed for me. She's unselfish, even while she's caught up in her own problems. Because she's a good woman, and she thinks of others, even in her distress. What a role model that makes for us when we're going through hard times. There is always room for goodness. Fourthly, 
Personal transformation begins with personal con conversion. Ruth chapter 1 and verse 16 is probably one of the most beautiful verses in the Old Testament. Certainly it's the best known verse in the book of Ruth. When Ruth says to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. I took the, west, the wedding yesterday here at St. Andrews of Aussie Tom Hanna, Australian, who, and uh, his Hungarian uh, wife now, uh, Sophia. They are lovely Christian people, very bright postdoc uh, research scientists working in the university here, now off to uh, America where Tom will continue his postdoc studies and uh, Sophia will work for the World Bank. Lovely Christian people who have been part of our lives here at St. Andrews for the last few years. One from Australia, as I say, one from Hungary. It was an interesting, uh, linguistically challenging cross-cultural experience at the wedding. And as some of you have had Hungarians staying in your homes, it has been challenging but fun. I used this verse from Ruth in my wedding address yesterday for Tom and uh, Sophia. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. Ruth has abandoned the worship of the Moabite god, Chemosh, and invited and converted to faith in Naomi's god, Yahweh. It is clear from this verse that this is a total conversion. Not even death is to separate her from Naomi and Naomi's god. Now, nobody could possibly have seen Naomi's character more clearly or got to know someone better than Orpah and Ruth would have done over these years as they'd experienced this threefold bereavement. How many tears they must have wept together. Ruth and Orpah would know whether Naomi's faith was real or not. One of them is convinced and I assume one is not for Orpah returns to her people and presumably to worship of Chemosh and of course we never hear of her again. But for Ruth, the story is very different. Conversion to Naomi's God is the beginning of transformation in her life. Personally, she adopts the lifestyle of a Jewess, and in due course, as we shall see, God uses her mightily, and she is to be the great-grandmother of great King David himself. The personal transformation began with the personal conversion. That will be true for us today. There is no transformation, no transformation of the heart, no true experience of God, no true faith unless we are born again, converted to following Christ. Fifthly and lastly, do not think that this life of godliness and truth will be easy. It will not be easy. The two women return to Bethlehem, of course, to live happily ever after. That's what would happen in a fairy tale, but it is not quite like that, as you can see. Initially, Naomi is not exactly a little ray of sunshine in the community in Bethlehem. The depression and despair and anger with God are still there. Just turn over the page and uh, see how very bitter she is. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, 
because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. She changes her name from Mrs. Nice, Naomi, to the widow bitter, Mara. She seems to lose sight for a while at least of the resources that she has in the Lord. I imagine that if uh, she had moved into the parish with Ruth and set up home, uh, the vicar's pastoral visit to Naomi and Ruth to welcome them to the community and have a nice cup of tea would not exactly have been a fun visit at this stage of their lives. What a chapter of complaints Naomi would have had. But of course, God has not finished with them. In fact, as we shall see, he has hardly started. Let me conclude by reading how David Atkinson sums this up in his little commentary. This is the last paragraph of his introduction, and I think it's true for us today. As we seek to follow the author's faith in God's providence and discover the second story, the divine perspective, which permeates his telling of the human tale, we can learn in our day when many are fearful of the evening and the dark that the God of Israel is willing to be known as our God. Living as we do this side of Calvary and the empty tomb, with our knowledge of the incarnate and ascended Lord, we can give a fuller meaning to the phrase kinsman redeemer than ever Naomi, Ruth or Boaz could have understood. But we in our way can share with them the knowledge that under his wings, in the pains and joys of our ordinariness, may be found the security of his refuge. We in our way can share with them the knowledge that under his wings, in the pains and joys of our ordinariness, may be found the security of his refuge. May that be true for us. Amen.